Distinguished guests and dear friends, welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Anne-Marie Schwedlich, Director-General of the National Library. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for this land that we are now privileged to call home. We are here to launch Hagel's Owl, The Life of Bernard Smith by Dr Sheridan Palmer, an art historian, curator and honorary fellow at the University of Melbourne. Congratulations, Sheridan, on a mighty achievement. And we're delighted to welcome you back to the library to celebrate the culmination of your research. Sheridan was a Harold White Fellow at the library in 2010, spending her days in this building immersed in Bernard Smith's life. We are honoured to hold his papers in our collection, donated to us through the Australian Government's Cultural Gifts Program. The 100 boxes contain, among many other things, letters, handwritten drafts and notes for articles, appointment books, journals, badges and medals, photographs and drawings. Sheridan describes this archive, together with Bernard Smith's two autobiographies, and his annotated library, which is at the State Library Victoria, as the marrow of her biography. It is a great pleasure to welcome our neighbour, Dr Gerard Vaughan, Director of the National Gallery to the library. Gerard and Sheridan worked together in 2013 when Sheridan interviewed him for the library's oral history project on Australian art. Bernard Smith is a towering figure in Australian art history and its intellectual and cultural development. And we are delighted that Gerard will do the honours tonight and launch Hagel's Owl. With this launch, we're very pleased to continue our relationship with the Power Institute Foundation for Art and Visual Culture. In 2014, the Power Institute partnered with us to produce the exhibition... Abstraction Creation, J.W. Parr in Europe, 1921 to 1938, drawing on the collections of the Institute and of the Library to tell the fascinating story of J.W. Parr. Professor Mark Ledbury, Director of the Parr Institute, is also with us this evening. Bernard Smith was the founding director of the Parr Institute, and so Professor Ledbury is his institutional successor. Through Power Publishing, Professor Ledbury is also the publisher of this excellent biography. I hold it up for you to recognise it in the bookshop later this evening. In her acknowledgements, Sheridan thanks Professor Ledbury for his faith in her to write Bernard Smith's biography, and so it is perfect that we can welcome him to the podium to continue tonight's proceedings. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much, and a very good evening to everyone. Thank you so much for coming. And, um, yes, I'm delighted to be standing here. A, and it's slightly trepidation, of course, as everyone since Bernard has been to, be, to inherit the shoes of the power professorship, but also because the Power Institute's mission which is really to incite, to catalyse, to diffuse ideas in the visual arts, 
is one that remains vital, as vital as it was, is as vital now as it was in the late 60s. And I just, I'm afraid I'm going to just break out of my speech for a minute to remind everybody here that if you don't know already, tomorrow is the day of action for the arts. Friday the 17th, we need to make everybody aware what, of what John Power was aware of, of what Bernard Smith was aware of, that that art is a fundamental impulse in human life, not froth on the surface of things, that the arts are a vital plank of any nation that considers itself to be in any way doing something more than existing. So, tomorrow, galvanised by Bernard or whatever galvanises you, protest, sign a petition... Stand up for the art. It, they need you. Anyway, back to my plot. Um, power does a lot of its, uh, uh, if you like, its engagement now via publications of one kind or another. And we're absolutely delighted that we slightly push the boat out beyond perhaps our, our traditional remit of the, of the academic, if you like, to publish something that we really believe has wide importance generally to the cultural history of Australia and, to, the, and to, the, to, to, to literature and to the writing of Australia's history. And I am absolutely delighted that we are standing here and celebrating uh, the achievement of Sheridan. But I must also thank other people that made this come to be. And I must certainly first thank um, first Emma White and then particularly Marnie Williams, our publication director, who really worked so closely um, with Marnie and the editing team, Mimi Kelly, who's here tonight, and all of those who helped Sheridan put this book together. I think Sheridan will add some thanks herself. We're pub the fact that we can do this, that we can publish and uh, spread the word, is, is very much a smell of an oily rag kind of procedure, to be honest. And it is remarkable dedication on part of a small team that has made this come about. So I must say that. If you want to find out more about Power Publications, you can go to www.powerpublications.com.au, which was a treasure trove, veritably, I tell you. Anyway, I'm very delighted here that Sheridan is enjoying very much the fruits of her labours, and I know how thoughtfully and skillfully and patiently she worked on this fascinating biography of a complex thinker who deserves to be understood as a great Australian intellectual figure and writer, as well as a pioneering artist story. But my main purpose tonight is to introduce our distinguished launcher, Dr. Jared Vaughan, uh, as better known to many of you here than perhaps to me, um, because, as you know, he held posts at the University of Oxford and the British Museum, returned to Melbourne, where, where he had studied... Um, uh, and as the director of the National Gallery of Victoria in 1999, which, which you will know heralded a, a new era in the expansion and prosperity of the NGV, both in terms of buildings and in exhibitions and kind of the weight of the institution, setting standards for the whole of Australia in his galvanising of support, enthusiasm and financial backing, indeed, for the visual arts. He's an art historian, though, with great interest, broad interest, including the study of taste and art collecting, both private and institutional. And he has written on uh, the, the post-impressionist painter Maurice Denis, but then took doctoral research on the, the classical on classical antiquities, the collecting of them and their taste making in 18th century Europe, and particularly also looking at the art market in Rome. But having stepped down from the directorship of the NGV, he then took some of those interests further and wrote a study of private art collecting in Australia, which I'm not quite sure if it's it, 
it's en route. It's coming out with uh, Melbourne University Press. And again, I think that story will intersect with, with Bernard's story at several points. But it's my great delight to, this evening, without further ado, to introduce Jared Vaughan. Well, thank you very much, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I, I've been asked in launching this book to, to make some broad comments about what the book covers and the trajectory um, of, of Bernard's life as, as it's presented to us um, in Sheridan's remarkable book. And I can only begin by saying that she's produced an epic biography. I think that's the best way to describe it. Um, one that addresses in an insightful, intelligent way the life and thinking of a man that she describes as, and I'm quoting, the father of Australian art history and, again, as one of Australia's most brilliant and pioneering intellectuals. Bernard Smith's viewpoint was always profoundly Australian and Antipodean, and that's a word you'll get to know very well indeed when you read this book. So in writing the biography, Sheridan has produced a riveting account of the cultural history of Australia over more than half a century, as she reveals to us the mind and writings of Bernard Smith. And it really is um, a wonderful read. Um, he was involved in so many of the big issues of the day. Um, for, for, uh, he, really, he led from the front um, on, on so many of these. And because his writings uh, were, and of course remain, so influential, this biography instantly becomes a key source for anyone interested in understanding the issues and the arguments which defined visual culture in Australia at that time. Bernard weighed into every debate, and his opinions were noticed. Well, Sheridan tells us in her introduction that Bernard himself invited her to write this biography, and it's very clear, the minute you begin to read it, that it's been a labour of love um, for a good number of years. In fact, you've just told me about five years, in fact, of, of very, very concentrated work. And, of course, um, there, there are many uh, different um, perspectives um, which were presented at the Joint University of Melbourne and Power Institute University of Sydney Symposium, The Legacies of Bernard Smith in 2012, and I gather that's sort of the publication is about to, about to come out, isn't it? That... Oh, that's fantastic. Um, so this biography is timely, and I think it's perfectly positioned, in fact. Um, and as, as you read it, you're going to become aware of the sympathy that Sheridan has for her subject, that his intellectual journey has necessarily become hers. And you sense throughout a wonderful understanding of where he came from intellectually, his enthusiasms, what we might describe as the building blocks of his life. And Sheridan has entered that world in particular through, of course, his library and those annotated volumes um, that you've used so much, which are now in the um, State Library of Victoria, as Amory has said. The early years are well covered. His illegitimate birth, his being fostered and yet remaining in touch with his birth mother, Roseanne Tierney, and all the issues which flow from that. And the poignant statement that when his foster mother, Mary Keane, died, he was excluded by her family um, from attending the funeral and mourning her in any kind of family context. So the early chapters document an incredible and inspiring story of survival and determination, nurtured by his voracious reading. And off we go then with, um, in, in, in Sheridan's book, we, we, we go, we, 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 he, she talks about the, the influence of Hegel on him. We go to Darwin's Origin of the Species, which, as you say, gave him intellectual liberation. Um, we're taken through his expanding knowledge base. He devoured Burkhardt's Civilization of the Renaissance in Italy. And then on to Marx, to Lenin, Tolstoy, 
Herbert Reed on art and society, and of course, in those early days at least, on surrealist ideas. So through that, he read Breton, Edouard, he looked at Miro, Dali, um, and of course, he developed a familiarity with the French symbolists, with T.S. Eliot, with the socialist writings of William Morris, and the book documents his scholarly triumphs. He became, despite all those um, issues in his early life. He became the ducks of his school. He won a bursary to Sydney Teachers College, and his first ever teaching job was in a primary school in a very remote part of rural New South Wales. And Sheridan aptly describes this period as, and I quote her, a decade in which his transformation from a primary school teacher into one of Australia's most brilliant young art historians and cultural critics was little short of spectacular. And I think that should really guide us and influence us as we work our way through this remarkable book. And if the first part of the biography does anything, I think it demonstrates um, Bernard's new sort of intellectual and social self-confidence, um, you know, what, what he achieved. Because he became involved not just with Marxist thinking and theory, but um, directly he joined the Communist Party of Australia. He took art lessons at Julian Ashton's Academy, and in 1940, he painted two incredibly powerful works, The Advance of Lot and His Brethren, strongly influenced by El Greco, and then Pompeii. And Sheridan describes the first as, again, I quote her, a requiem for a disintegrating society. And, of course, he, was, he watched in horror when he was a bit younger um, what happened in Spain, of course, during the, the Civil War. And while, of course, um, these works had clear affinities with aspects of surrealist practice. They were, in fact, included in that wonderful 1993 surrealist exhibition at the NGA here in Canberra. Um, it also has more relevance, perhaps, as a kind of precursor of that mythical figuration practiced by Arthur Boyd, um, for example, um, influenced by uh, Flemish masters. And Sheridan reminds us several times, I think very appropriately, of Bernard's admiration for Yeats and his symbolic poetry through the lens of Celtic mythology. So the same concept, bringing the romantic myth of the past into the present. And I can say happily, my predecessor, Ron Radford, managed to acquire both of these for the NGA collection in 2008. So they're now securely here um, in Canberra. Bernard was absorbed into the Sydney avant-garde and he began also to spend more time in Melbourne, forming friendships with key Melbourne painters such as Boyd, Percival, Blackman, Tucker, Bergner. It was a period of titanic battles between modernists and um, conservatives in Australian society. And again, Sheridan writes articulately about Bernard's embrace of the Central European and largely Jewish intelligentsia um, who came to Australia um, at that time. I can't emphasise enough and I'm going to say it a couple of times um, during these remarks, the degree to which Sheridan's biography of Bernard must by definition become an account of Australia's intellectual and cultural history. Well, in 1944, many of you will know this, he got a job at the Art Gallery of New South Wales as an education officer, but through that he met people like Charles Lloyd Jones, Mary and Clive Evatt, and a lot of things began to develop and take off. And the interest which led to his first major publishing success, Place, Taste and Tradition, began to form at this time. And then, of course, he met um, the English-born um, Kate Chalice, um, whom he married. And again, there's a very sort of interesting account of, of their relationship and um, the, the, the family life um, of, of Bernard and his wife and their children. So Sheridan's clear, thoughtful account of his emergence as a major art historian then becomes the central focus of the rest of the book. And everything is carefully placed in context. Um, I'm, I'm just... I, I often read... Um, passages that Sheridan has, has, has created what, thinking I could never get those complex ideas together in such a succinct couple of lines, but it's really one of the great strengths of the books. And she documents the development of those ideas, which above all 
can, can defined his contribution. And we, we all know that, you know, Bernard's ideas about empire and the colonies, the center and the periphery, the case for, I suppose, realism and also for regionalism. And the book, um, Place, Taste and Tradition, was a big success. And he, came, he saw himself as a kind of proselytizer for the idea of art as reflecting society and art as being um, a force for quite fundamental change. And Keith Murdoch's hope, because um, Melbourne keeps coming into the story, that Bernard might become deputy director of the NGV came to nothing. And one of the factors was his affiliation with the Communist Party. So woven through the following pages and chapters, um, we find many references to this issue, including his difficulties in securing a US visa and indeed in London being followed by MI5. Um, and in due course, Bernard became completely disillusioned with communism following particularly, um, as we read, um, a visit to Eastern Europe in 1948 when he was in um, studying in London. And in 1950, just as he returned to Sydney, um, he returned his card to the Communist Party of Australia. The development of the scholar then becomes central in the book. He, we, we, we learn that he studied classics at Sydney University under Dale Trendle, who taught him certain methodologies of connoisseurship. And then with the help of Joseph Burke in Melbourne, he was accepted for the Courthold Institute at the University of London and was, and was awarded a British Council Research Scholarship. Now, Sheridan's account of Bernard Smith confronting Anthony Blunt's patrician behaviour and approach, and his much happier transfer to the Warburg Institute, where he worked with Charles Mitchell, uh, does in fact make very, very interesting reading. One of the things that I've most enjoyed about the book is the documentation of, Lon of, of London's Australian cultural diaspora in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. So I'm going to be thumbing through the book on many, many occasions to work out who was where when, but it is actually very, very helpful, um, the way that all of that is documented. In 1949, he became interested in promoting an Australian exhibition for London, uh, but he was persuaded by Kenneth Clark, who was just back from Australia and from meeting Nolan, Drysdale, and others, that it was not probably the right time but it was a project he hankered after, only to be gazumped a decade later when Brian Robertson of the Whitechapel Gallery um, swept in and produced that highly popular and very famous um, and influential exhibition. As Sheridan puts it, Robertson had stolen Bernard's thunder and marginalised him. Um, but nevertheless, um, it was a very, very important event. Now, the, the observations on Bernard's wish to get Australian art publicly exhibited in London and talked about are extremely interesting, one of the best parts of the book, in fact. And um, surely these observations and, 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 and the, the, the um, ideas and attempts that she documents um, should be the subject, perhaps, of a major symposium, um, which could conclude, perhaps, with the NGA's London Royal Academy exhibition of a couple of years ago and the, the critical response. Well, in the late 1940s, he met and befriended Rex Nan Cavell, um, whose astonishing collections are held right here um, in Canberra. This was the period of his pioneering research, which, of course, led to um, European vision of the South Pacific, and a book which I've always believed to be one of the greatest studies ever published on Enlightenment ideas. And the evolution of the research and the underlying thesis is explored again in exemplary detail. It really is a, a wonderful and engaging read. Um, I'm not going to talk about Bernard's time in Canberra, um, because I know that's what Sheridan is going to talk about in a moment. Um, but, of course, back to Melbourne, back to teaching in the um, Joe Burke's new fine art, Department of Fine Arts at the University of Melbourne, and that brought access to Bursala Hoff at the NGV, to Eric Westbrook and others. And, of course, his association with artists was crucial, and perhaps we think of him, most of all, um, as the person who really devised the Antipodean Manifesto of 1959, uh, when he joined with the Boyds, um, with Brack, 
Blackburn, um, Percival, and Blackman, I should say, at Percival and Pew, um, artists who were, term, who were determined to exhibit representative works, often with an Australian sort of mythic quality, but it was very much a rejection of international abstraction. Uh, that's to say um, that he preferred and promoted a kind of figurative regionalism. 1962 saw the publication of that incredible um, Australian painting, which went into so many editions. When I was a student, an undergraduate, um, it was a book I sort of looked at closely and constantly, but it's interesting because Sheridan takes us through the reviews, what people said about it, and a lot of people did make the comment that um, it was rather loaded rhetoric, I think is the term that you use, and uh, in other words, that he, that he chose things that suited him, suited his thesis and his beliefs and his ideas, um, and left other things out, and I have to say I had my own little um, experience of that in the 1970s when as an undergraduate I began reading um, in some depth primary sources on the visual culture of Melbourne in the 1880s and 1890s. And I began to realise that what I thought the reality that I was discovering was really rather different to what Bernard Smith had published. So it was a very interesting sort of exercise in um, you know, art historiography to think about these kinds of issues um, as, a, as a young um, emerging sort of art historian. So the huge issue of day, of course, was um, in the Australian art world was the power bequest, a staggering one million. I'm not going to say any more about that, but um, the, you've heard from Mark, his successor, um, that he occupied um, that, that chair and the post of director for, for a decade, from 67 um, to 77. And Sheridan can be tough at times, and she makes the point that perhaps Bernard's appointment and the time there might, might not overall be regarded um, as an unqualified success. Um, there, there were issues about it which go right to the heart of what really interested Bernard, in fact, and um, it, it, it makes very, very good reading. Then two major books, of course, Documents on Art and Taste in Australia, the Antipodean Manifesto, again, um, which um, Sheridan reminds us Bernard regarded as some of his best research and writing. The 1980 Boyer Lectures, the, 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 the spectre of Truganini, um, really broke new ground and, and made an enormous sort of contribution to discussions about Indigenous aspirations. Then in 1998, he published uh, Modernism's History, a monumental attempt to understand the development of the modern movement and to distinguish modernism from postmodernism. And for the first time, perhaps, the critical response was very uneven and in some cases quite negative, particularly concerning uh, Bernard's invention of and promotion of the word formalesque to, de to define and describe the principal trajectory of contemporary art from 1890 up to the 1970s. Now, not to be deterred, he published another salvo, a different book entitled The Formalesque in 2007, and Bernard asked me to launch it at the NGV, and in some ways it was a tough gig because it was a wonderful book, good to read, and yet I too shared some of those concerns that others had, whether or perhaps the word formalesque was just too limiting. Um, so it, it, it was interesting, but it, but it forced me to really read both books very carefully and to make the point that... Um, Bernard, of course, was saying absolutely the right thing. It is a logical argument that if you're writing about art produced perhaps almost 100 years ago, the word modernism isn't all that helpful. In other words, there needs to be an appropriate um, alternative. But look, um, again, to understand all of those sort of issues, just read the book, and um, it, it's very, very subtly and thoughtfully handled by, um, by, by Sheridan. Well, um, all I'm going to say now, I, I've been asked to launch the book, so I think all I can say is the book is launched. Um, it's, it's, it really is a fantastic read. I, I loved every minute of it, and um, I read it sort of through a day and a night, actually, um, cause I, and I really I could hardly put it down. Um, it does Bernard proud, and it's a fascinating read, and through the prism of Bernard's writing and thinking, I think it helps us to know ourselves.
Thank you, Jared. That was marvellous, and I have to say, um, Jared and I seem to have been establishing something of a tradition. Um, he launched my first book in 2008, and I'm probably encouraged now to think that I should write another one so he can launch that. I'd also like to thank you, Anne-Marie. It's wonderful being back here. Um, and, of course, this is where I spent so much time working my way through Bernard, and, and it's, it's just such a pleasure. Um, and, of course, to Mark, thank you also for your faith in, in taking this book on without having seen the manuscript at the time. And um, I, I think Bernard would be proud, I have to say. Um, I, I won't spend too much more time. I, I, I'd like to s start um, on my words, few words. Um, as you can see, I've titled the talk Not a Room to be Entered by Means of One Key. Sometime between 1954 and 1956, when Bernard Smith was working on his PhD at the newly established Australian National University, he deviated from his, his thesis to write a piece of literary criticism. It was on the connection between the astronomer William Wales, who accompanied Captain James Cook on his second voyage in 1772, and Samuel Coleridge's poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Early in the, the essay, and, and, and Bernard considered it one of these best pieces of research he ever did, Smith wrote this beguiling sentence. All who have felt the haunting and dreamlike power of the poem know well enough that the ancient mariner is not a room to be entered by means of one key. Those words, not a room to be entered by means of one key, struck me as absolutely uh, appropriate for the writing of biography. A person's life is like a house with many rooms, and it is the biographer's job to locate the doors, find the right keys, and enter. Fortunately, Bernard was an exceptionally organised, well-archived man, as his library uh, can attest. So he left, sorry, as this library can attest. So he left most keys well-labelled, and I was able to follow his life without difficulty. And what a life, one that spanned a dramatically changing world in which tradition and the atom were split and global extremes became the new symbolic passport. Smith's formidable scholarly range is generally well known. From the art of Captain Cook's uh, voyages and oceanic history to modernism's history, from social realism to cultural imperialism, but once into his extensive mindscape, I had to grasp his emotional gradations and find his Achilles heel and note the degrees of his egocentrism. He was adamant that no door be left unopened and that his life be fully aired and bared. And that was a challenge in itself. And while I was prepared to go along with him, um, occasionally I had to question Smith's motives and why he wanted to disclose highly sensitive material. 
Biography is the perfect platform for revealing the inner and outer life. Sensational revelations that can either resurrect or jaundice reputations. And when you have an assiduously archived person like Bernard Smith, one must ask whether it was the historian's foresight to keep important and seemingly minor documents, or whether his selectivity was an eye for posterity as much as for personal vanity. In Smith's case, his ego was extremely well-tempered by his socialist and Marxist values, a commitment to historical fidelity and truthful outcomes. And all of this was without a doubt a magnificent biographer's gift. As I followed Smith from birth and childhood to, in Burwood, a working-class suburb of Sydney, through adolescence in the Great Depression, to London and Europe in the late 40s, Canberra and Melbourne during the 1950s, back and forth to Europe and occasionally to the USA. The notion of distance, both geographic and intellectual, emerged as a major key. Bernard understood distance very well. As an illegitimate child and fostered ward of the state, there was emotional distance even within his kind foster family. In particular, there was a palpable distance between him and society. He was a child living in the margins. As he matured, he understood the necessity of keeping and using distance to see things whole. As he said, I'm thinking of distance, or more precisely distancing, as an intellectual tool, both for aesthetic evaluation and for the writing of history. And, and this is why... I, I called the biography Hegel's Owl, for it was the philosopher Hegel, one of Bernard's um, most important intellectual guides, who wrote, I quote Hegel, the owl of Minerva spreads its wings only with the falling of the dusk. It is a magnificent metaphor for understanding events with the aid of temporal distance, a rear view, as Bernard called it he insistently role-played Minerva's Owl. Bernard Smith was also acutely sensitive to origins and identity, especially his own and as well as that of Australia's. This is, this is how he put it. Origins are strange things, and to be born outside of the conventions of a whole social structure is to be critical forever. Of the larger picture, he wrote, and I think this is really extremely important, it, it undermarks under um, Bernard's entire philosophy. Being Antipodean is a relationship that is global, derived from the Greek word antipus, meaning having the feet opposite. It requires the existence of two terms, as agents, places, persons, or things diametrically opposed to each other on the Earth's surface. Such positions are infinite. Any place on the globe can be antipodal to the other. It was where one stood that made all the difference, and Bernard was always mindful of where his antipodes was. 
Geography is a form of mapping that gives one certainty of place, and place for Bernard was important. It was integral to his identity. Land anchors you. You may not own it, but it possesses you. Whether it was the forest recesses of the Blue Mountains where, he, uh, where Bernard ran as a boy, or rural New South Wales where he worked as a young school teacher in the 1930s, or the long red ridge of the Australian interior seen from a plain. These unique features, distinctly Australian, provided Smith with a concept of locality and universality, regionalism and the global, as well as the politics of aesthet and aesthetics of place. Landscape permeates a great deal of Bernard's work, as does the political. In the biography, I mention how in a BBC broadcast in 1950, Bernard led his British listeners through the unique qualities of the Australian landscape and how it had created a distinct type of painting. From the colonial, romantic and impressionist art, he arrived at one of his favourite artists, Russell Drysdale, who, he said, painted the landscape as though he was half in love half in fear of his subject, because the Australian landscape is a, a willful, capricious thing, half wild, half tame, half myth, half reality. Artists shape our vision, and Bernard understood the necessity of articulating those visions. As he said, art history is a kind of biography. For him, artists mattered. In 1944, Bernard Smith accompanied Mary Alice Evatt, the National Art Gallery of New South Wales' first female trustee to this city, where they set up an exhibition of modern paintings in the Masonic Lodge. I'm sorry, but I can't remember, nor do I know where the, the old Masonic Lodge was, but Canberra was then a small country town with little more than 7,000 people. And Oscar Spate, the, the inaugural professor of geography at the ANU, and a critical intellectual influence on Bernard, noted bottled milk, which had been promised in 1938 for 1939, didn't arrive until 1954, so one had to put the billy out. Bernard's encounter with the new national capital was viewed with the eye of an up-and-coming cultural historian. And I quote a few lines from a poem that he wrote about Canberra at the time. The capital of Australia is a sort of permanent gesture scratched in the earth with a large compass, white buildings in a planned wilderness. This city lives in the future, its archives in the past. White buildings in a planned wilderness, words that build an image, and the design of the city is scratched in the earth with a large compass perhaps something like William Blake's powerful image of Newton and the civilised hand of science inscribing itself over the earth. Bernard knew how to compress words into the visual, historical and geographical. Words mattered and meaning had to be succinct and clarify. In 1834, while sailing on the Beagle, Charles Darwin, another important figure in Bernard's development, wrote, The meridian of the Antipodes, this airy barrier, and all such resting places for the imagination, 
are like shadows which a man moving onwards cannot catch. When Bernard Smith embarked on his career as a cultural critic in the, in the early 1940s, he wanted to investigate those shadows and locate the antipodes, not as an airy barrier on the periphery, but a legitimate place. Instead of Australia being categorised as a poor, culturally deficient thing, a second-rate uh, imitation of Europe's great cultural edifice, Bernard placed antipodal inversion, having the feet opposite on centre stage. Not only did he give provincialism a centre, but he argued that the Pacific had significantly defined Europe, especially as a burgeoning imperial power during the 18th and 19th century. It was a two-way identity process. Equally, he noted, I quote, in the Pacific, it was not only trade and commerce that followed the flag, but also scientific theory. Discovery and the theory of evolution not only transformed power in terms of possession, but it also operated as a powerful anodyne for the suppression of guilt when dealing with the subjugation and all too often extermination of what the British called lesser breeds. In Bernard Smith's 1980 Boyer lectures, The Spectre of Traganini, he named the colonial crime and the present as having potential for redemptive atonement and liberation. One of Smith's main arguments was how information, ideas, taste and style, in other words, cultural values, are carried and exchanged between individuals, countries and hemispheres. And one of the most important resources that he relied on in his research was the Rex Nan Cavell collection held here. Bernard met Nan Cavell in London in 1948, just as the first shipment of Nan Cavell's treasures and artefacts were on their way to Australia. And when you put together what the two men stand for, Nan Cavell's extraordinary collection and Smith's scholarship, we find the real beginnings of oceanic studies, post-colonialism, and the revision of, of Australia's cultural inheritance. Indeed, cultural encounters and convergence was one of the most important rooms in Bernard's mind. For contact, whether between the coloniser and the colonised, between the marginal, marginalised state ward and the elite, yielded both understanding of the individual and his or her place within society and cultures. Bernard's approach to analysing the cultural mood of a period, whether imperial Britain, colonial Australia or the global 20th century was pioneering. His formulation of historic development and modern thought prized open Australia's colonial history to reveal its fascinating records of social origins and urban progress through art. Colonial art was not Australian art, but rather European art made in Australia, a kind of brand name, as Bernard put it. Artists like John Glover, Augustus Earle, Conrad Martins and Eugene Vongerard were the messengers who transplanted the styles and institutions based upon the European art systems as they knew them. Bernard's questioning of Australia's early cultural identity laid a solid foundation for future art and cultural historians 
to reappraise the conditions that continue to market today. It is also why he was nominated a member of the Australian Humanities Research Council in 1956 in recognition of his brilliant dissertation, European Vision and the South Pacific. And finally, a significant legacy of Bernard's illegitimacy and state welfare upbringing was his acute sensitivity to the unequal exchange. It was why identity mattered to him and why he remained a Marxist. He was always concerned about inequality and the underdogs of society. It emboldened him to challenge systems, think provocatively, and to tackle huge, fertile projects without fear or favour. As he said, the risk is worth taking if it is justifiable. This is what made Bernard Smith such a distinctive and exciting scholar, a magnificent intellectual. He pushed arguments out into the public domain and kept them alive because they mattered to the moral and cultural fibre of Australia. Being oppositional was another way of being antipodean. But it was his colossal contribution to the shaping of the arts in Australia that continues to see him rehabilitated within and outside the academy. Like Coleridge's ancient mariner, Bernard Smith remains an enduring presence, a revisionist of origins and identity, both global and, and antipodean. Thank you very much.